This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. It's me, it's me, and listen, I have enjoyed my life shared with females like a stunningly exciting woman that was my mom, funniest lady I've ever known in my life. Um, some of the women that I've worked with, some of the women that uh, have been guests on shows that I've done. But in this case, Sarah Stancord, uh, Sarah Stancorb is one of the most unique authors that I have ever had occasion in the 24 years that we've been doing The God Show. And unique not only because of the subject of her book and the direction that it takes, the title being Disobedient Women. That is, dis-obedient women. Fellas, do I have your attention? Thank you. Subtitled, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse brought down powerful pastors, and ignited an evangelical reckoning. Now, doesn't that get your attention, huh? Sarah Stancorp, as we welcome you to The God Show, uh, I found the book to be fascinating and equally disturbing. Does that Mm -hmm. surprise you? No. (laughs) No. It's, a very heavy read, for sure. Yes, the women being taken advantage of, young, young girls being taken advantage of by men in power, often the power coming from Scripture, many of the ministers. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, we should acknowledge that Sarah will sound different than most of the guests that you hear here. And I'm going to let Sarah explain why. Sarah? Yeah. So I have a vocal condition called spasmodic dysphonia. Um, If any of your listeners also like NPR, they very likely listen to Diane Reem. For years, she has the same vocal condition that I do in. Actually, she's the reason why I was able to get a diagnosis until my grandmother heard her on the radio. No one really quite knew what to call what was happening with my voice. Well, I, I will tell you that your communication in the book is so compelling uh, that I spent hours late into the night, reading every page, wondering at the same time if you were the woman who grew up with obedient or disobedient women. Who are the examples in your life? What an interesting question. So I think probably my two biggest female role models or my mother, who uh, she shouldered 
a lot. Um, my father was an alcoholic, and my mom just carried us financially. She also had a neurological condition, so the, the work she did was very hard for her. Um, but she did a lot to try to keep our family going. And I think in some ways she didn't fight back in in the ways that I I think I might have. Um, the flip side is my grandmother, who was valedictorian of her graduating class, and she came of age in the depression. Um, she ended up not being able to go to college for financial reasons. But throughout her life, and when I knew her, filled her house with books. Everywhere you went, there were different books on any topic you could imagine. And she divorced her alcoholic husband in a time when, when women did not do such a thing. And so she lived on her own. She made her own money. And anything you can imagine a person would want to learn, she got a book and she taught herself how to fix the car, how to do photography, how to oil paint. She had this limitless curiosity. And I'd say she was highly disobedient. <laughs> <laughs> and proudly so. Yes, yes. But who were the women that were obedient to men that you wrote about at least early on in the book? To whom to whom were they obedient and why? So I've spent a number of years reporting on women from highly conservative evangelical communities. And many, many of these girls were taught that they needed to be submissive. So that meant being submissive to the fathers who held a sort of quasi-godly uh, authority over their families, that idea of headship, and also their pastors. Um, and if they did not comply, many of their families used horrible punishment to discipline them into submission. So they got the message early that it was both the godly thing to do, to submit, but also a really self-protective thing to do, because if they didn't, they, they might get hurt. But isn't a patriarchy something that goes back a century, two centuries ago. Isn't it something from the past? I can't imagine as I read page after page after page of contemporary congregations being led by patriotic zealots who took advantage of sometimes very young girls. So, and this is, it was interesting to me as a reporter coming from outside this world. I, too, had that skepticism. How does this exist in our country? 
I, I didn't grow up with people like this, but the more reporting I did, I discovered whole ministries with enormous following, like the um, Institute of Basic Life Principles, your listeners may have heard of Bill Gothard, Vision Forum, which is another large ministry that are books to families and taught they, they taught the idea of Christian patriarchy as something to aspire to. Others use a softer term, complementarianism, that still encourages this idea of headship and women's submission within marriage, children's submission to their parents, but above all to their father. And so it really does exist in many families across our country. And the folks I got to know were raised in these environments. And only later in life were they, they find the wherewithal to speak out. But some of the names that you mentioned in your book uh, that represented patriarchal thinking uh, mm -hmm. and patriarchal power some of the names very familiar, uh, the people who uh, adhered to and preached the concept that, in general, uh, men were designed and intended by God to be the leaders, and women were intended by God to be subservient. What were some of those familiar names in media, in Christian media, for example, and publishing? Yeah, so Doug Phillips, I just mentioned the Jim Forum. He was a bigger name, especially in homeschool, Christian homeschool families. One of the biggest names, though, is Bill Gothard. If people have watched the recent uh, he series, from the Amazon Any Happy People. He had reach of, I think, 2.5 million people who attended his conferences. But he also wrote and sold the homeschool curricula at the families used the home. He also has a variety of political ties to families like the Huckabees and the uh, Sarah So. Even, even if you were not personally involved at this point, I think many of us now at least know the name Bill Gothard, if only in relation to someone like the, the reality TV show, The Family, The Duggars, of 19 Kids and Counting. For quite a while, that family really showed America a version of Christianity that we hadn't known, and some people couldn't believe in what was on their television, but they lived out a lot of Gothard's teaching. And under no circumstances do I want, or Sarah, want to immediately stamp all televangelists or all evangelical authors uh, with the category of abuser, uh, that would be as sinful as their sin. 
Right, right. No, that's definitely not the case. But what I did help to show was when there was an environment that required women to be submissive. And in the same environment, when talking speaking up about abuse was discouraged or treated as of gossip, that in those environments, it was it was more likely for that abuse to exist. And, the, and then when you add it in large institutions, they could be threatened by claims of abuse. Then there were many instances of cover-up. So what I am attempting to show is the vulnerability, not the fact that this does not happen everywhere. But when you have a formula with a variety of these vulnerabilities, the likelihood of abuse goes up. Yeah, and the way I'm hoping, and the advocates in my book certainly work toward is warning people that these vulnerabilities do exist. And if they exist and you don't want to see abuse in your church, go ahead and let's work together to try to protect people. But Sarah, how common, at least according to the book of Sarah Stancorp, how common in evangelical religious circles is abuse, and how common are cover cover-ups? So I think probably the clearest example would be the Southern Baptist Convention, which has been in and out of the news, but um, most starting in 2019 with the Houston Chronicles expose. Um, what we ended up seeing through the independent investigation and now the Department of Justice investigation is ongoing, that there was knowledge of abuse and that one staffer within SBC on, on their own, not directed by anyone, but just on their own, was able to document 205 pages. So a table, not just one name per page, but 205 pages of pastors who had been in the news or in other public documents for abuse. So I, the scale of that and the fact that more more often than I think we want to see a pastor would have a credible allegation and then just move to another church because the the tracking and the the um the database that people have been asking for for all these years didn't exist so that the next church didn't necessarily have a way of tracking back and finding out on, on what terms has the pastor moved on. And that, that moving of pastors is similar in some ways to what we've all now become familiar with within the Catholic Church. Within SBC, it was not as intentional, but because the fail-safe mechanism did not exist, they were still free to move. But is it almost exclusively a problem of Christianity? 
Oh, no, definitely not. Definitely not. But the way that Christianity within these communities was taught to both the children within these churches and with their pastors having this high level of authority because you'll have abuse anywhere. You may have abuse in any institution. The difference is when you're in a community where you see your perpetrator as having a sort of godly authority, that makes it so much harder to speak up. And in the minds of the victims, they can believe that this was God's will. And so they don't even have the, the motivation to say, this is wrong, this is hurting me, this is this is not something God wants. Because within the way they've been taught, they see their pastor as having this authority that's so close to God, they don't even know how to question it. So Sarah Stancorb, Sarah Stancorb is our guest uh, today, and uh, early on, in as she grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, she was also uh, she was a daughter of, as she said earlier, not only an alcoholic but one given to rages, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, rarely ever knew when she was called to her father's side uh, whether there was going to be uh, an explosive eruption of anger or whether it was going to be affection. And, uh, and later on, as she grew into womanhood and uh, also recognized the things that were going on around her and with friends and associates and stories that she would hear, it all came to be a reality in the book Disobedient Women. I mean, it really is a a remarkable listing and description and uh, a, a sad and sometimes adventurous travel with a small group of faithful women who exposed abuse, brought down powerful pastors, and as she says in the subtitle, ignited evangelical reckoning. How did the disobedient women respond since most of them uh, were not encouraged to do so as they were growing up? Yeah, so in a lot of ways, this is a book about the power of the internet. Um, early on, so, you know, early on in the internet is 20, like 2007, 2009, there were a few figures who took to the internet and described what they had experienced or described abuse they were aware of within their own local church. And from that place, because of the you grew up thinking this only happened to me, but this only happened in my church. But once they were online, when other people found their stories, they realized that not only did this not just happen to me, this happened to many other people 
who had a similar presentation of theology to me. And in that way, it, it helped people see that this, this assertion of authority and the way it was used by abuse wasn't a singular thing, something that happened to a lot of other people. And once they came to that conclusion, they realized there may be something systemic here. And once folks started asking systemic questions, then they began to mobilize um, about abuses within a specific church or abuse perpetuated within the various homeschool families. And they at least started to ask these hard questions that on their own they really never would have. What part did homeschooling play? It seemed as if there was a consistent pattern there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So homeschooling, I feel like it comes up in two ways. For the moms who are the homeschooling mothers, in some of these communities, they are also encouraged to have baby after baby after baby, that sort of quote-unquote mindset that you're responsible for uh, procreating to increase the number of Christians in the country. So you have mothers who are already really going through a lot to produce many, many children that are not responsible for their school. Yeah, they go to homeschool conferences trying to get material to teach their children, but that's also where many of the women I interviewed came across books that taught them this more patriarchal version of their faith. So in that way, homeschooling was a route for getting this information into the hands of the mothers. Now, within the book, the other group of people that I covered is folks who, once they became adults, who had been raised in homeschooling families, started describing the impact of those books that so many of their families read. So many, many, many of them, whether it was James Dobson or the Pearls, their families read similar books about discipline and how to train a child. And in their parents' minds, they were trying to preserve the, uh, the spirituality of their children. The way that worked out, though, for these children was severe corporal punishment and a lot of fear and a lot of normalization of abuse. And because they were often isolated and didn't have adults from outside their communities to talk to, they were very alone in that. So that was a, a common thread within a lot of these young adults, some of whom just just left, just moved out on their own when they found websites of other young people who were sharing similar experiences. Now, Sarah, you've had to deal with and overcome the problems of a dysfunctional family in so many ways and also had to deal with and uh, get past the reality of a condition called spasmodic uh, dystonia what are your feelings about Christianity as a result of all of the stories that you heard and wrote about 
and the people who in so many cases got away with it. We've only got a couple of minutes. Please tell me. Yeah. So I think it's strange that after writing a book like this, I have this profound respect for the the women and some men, some male advocates, who struggled through all of this. Some kept their faith, some left their faith to find something else to sustain them. But I see whether they're Christians or some other religious affiliation, I see such resilience in them, and I feel like that's taught me quite a bit about the human condition and the willingness of people to be public and share their pain if they believe that that will help someone else. And there's something something I, I just can't look away from in that. Um, and I don't know if that, that's not specific to Christianity, but I see for those who do have faith how that keeps them, how that helps keep them going. And it is, it's impressive to me despite all the rats that I've also uncovered. Well, her name is Sarah Stancorb. <laughs> and, and in order to respond to some of the folks who were saying, okay, I don't think I've ever met a Stancorb, but how do I spell it? Because I want to get the book. S-T-A-N-K-O-R-B. And you can also look under... This, this book, Disobedient, Disobedient Women, as written by Sarah Stancorp. And you will leave having read a book about victories and successes and not just those who were left behind. This has been The God Show, and I'm Pat McMahon.